0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Before we get into today's episode, a very quick pitch for our Writing for Impact and Influence science writing course, which is taught by yours truly and starting this July. There's a link in the show notes for more information, but feel free to send me any questions you might have about the course at bioscience at AIBS.org. For today's episode, our focus is once again on the SARS coronavirus 2, with an eye toward the small businesses that are in the testing space, which is obviously immensely important in responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. We have two interviews to share in this episode, and first up is Dr. Crystal Eisenhower, CEO of Aperiomics and a previous guest on this show. I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes. Aperiomics has recently shifted their focus to coronavirus testing and is working quickly to increase testing capacity. After that, we have Dr. Robbie Barbero of Ceres Nanosciences. Ceres Nanosciences' nanotrap technology is currently being tested with the SARS coronavirus 2 and is expected to help in improving the accuracy of existing testing protocols. But with no further ado, let's go to that first interview. Dr. Eisenhower, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Okay, so uh, the first thing I was wondering about is how did a periomics first get involved in COVID-19 testing? You know, I guess that's a question of who approaches whom and, and how do these sort of arrangements get made?
1: So we've been watching the unfolding of COVID-19 since January and we'd had several conversations at our C-level on if we should um, if we should offer testing. And in January and February, it appeared that there were going to be plenty of other large public health labs and and major medical centers offering testing. And so we decided that we probably didn't have a significant role to play in covid nineteen. Um, however, as we entered into march, that that became um, it became clear that there were some some significant issues in access to testing, especially in our our local area. So, we evaluated the situation. We realized that some of the biggest issues facing all labs, no matter how big or how small, was access to supplies in order to run the tests. And so we spent a few days looking at alternative materials that we could source. Um, we have some, some good connections into other countries through my team, and we determined that we would be able to make some minor modifications to the CDC assay and to account for supply chain issues and so we decided to to throw our hat in and and to offer COVID-19 testing primarily focusing on our local region because that's you know we're, we're a small company we can't we can't save the world but we can certainly have a significant impact in our local region
0: Okay, and, and how does this test uh, differ from you know the, the testing that you typically perform? And I should mention that we've done a podcast on that before, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. So if people are looking for a broader overview, they'll be able to find it. But uh, how is this setup uh, different from what you would typically do?
1: So this is a much more straightforward test than, than what we typically do. Uh, we're looking for COVID-19. We're using a reverse transcriptase PCR Assay to look for viral RNA specific for COVID-19. So, what? Our, how this differs from our core technology is our core technology looks for everything that's known in each sample. So, we screen each sample, whether it's blood, tissue, urine, fecal, whatever kind of a sample we're working with. We screen it for nearly forty thousand microorganisms, so every known bacterium, virus, parasite, and fungus. So. It, our core technology is, is, is much more comprehensive and much more um, intensive than, than what we're doing for the COVID-19. Uh,
0: so is this one significantly easier than the core technology-based tests?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. There's, um, it, it's much faster, it's much less expensive and it's much easier for my staff to, to perform.
0: And what was making this switch over to this other form of testing like was this an is this an easy switch or is it something that you know required you to uh, retool a lot of systems kind of how how did that process work?
1: It was a fairly straightforward switch. Um, The biggest so in order to perform our core technology, we already had the trained high complexity lab personnel. We already had the equipment in our laboratory to do the testing. The biggest challenge we had was in finding supplies that would meet adequate quality standards to perform the test. And then my technical team, my software team, had to go in and, in very quick fashion, make some adjustments to our reporting system and um, build in a system to make sure that our results are being reported to the state of Virginia. So their job, I think, was harder than, than it was on the wet lab side of things.
0: Yeah, and how has it been you know, to you know, interface with the state of Virginia and any other governmental organizations? Um, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I also wonder about things like funding. You know, you know, how is this sort of testing paid for, that sort of thing?
1: So our testing is paid for by the patient. Um, we're not in a position, we're a, a young company, and we're not in a position to be able to provide testing free of charge to patients. And there's no government support for doing this testing. The insurance companies are required to reimburse for testing. And so we, we worked really hard to, to make sure that our pricing was set close to what we think insurances are going to reimburse their patients. Um, because we don't want people to be out of pocket for the testing. We, we want them to get, get the testing. Uh, but we also need to make sure we can pay for supplies and, and staff time.
0: That makes sense. And uh, how scalable is this approach? And you know, and how many tests have you performed so far? And how many do you anticipate performing over the coming weeks and months?
1: So, to date, we've performed a few hundred tests. A lot of those were, you know, getting the initial validation work done um, to do the filings with the state and and FDA. The where we're where we're scaling to, and and in large part due to the generosity of. Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Genelia campus, we're able to to provide a significant amount of scale for a a lab of our size. So we're looking to provide up to 2,500 samples per week. Um, So we have the capacity to to run up to 2,500 samples per week, given the, the additional support we're getting from Genelia.
0: That's quite a few. Is that number um, larger than you would have performed using your core technology, you know, it, the the typical test?
1: Yes, yes. So with the the PCR testing for COVID-19, we can turn around results same day. And so far, we've been able to turn around results same day. For our core technology, that is a multiple day process. So we we can't turn around as much high volume with that technology.
0: That's interesting. And you mentioned the um, collaboration with uh, Howard Fuse Medical Institute, Janelia Campus. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, what was that collaboration born of? And, um, you know, uh, what kinds of things are you doing together?
1: It was really, uh, we sent out a press release announcing that we were going to be providing COVID-19 testing. And we're located in Loudoun County, in the same county where Janelia is located. And they saw the press release and reached out and asked how they could help. So we sat down with their, their leadership and came up with a plan. Um, they got it approved through, through Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and um, we now have instrumentation that they've loaned us to provide additional um, volume testing. We also have volunteers. They have amazing scientists and staff members that are volunteering their time to help us do a, as much COVID-19 testing as we can. So it's really been an amazing partnership. And beyond that, um, we, we've had a, a handful of positive samples come in so far. And we're going to be working with Genelia to do additional research on those samples. We What we like to do is we'd like to do full genome sequencing for all of the positive samples so that we can help add to some of the other work that other researchers are doing to characterize um, and give a a very deep look at what this COVID-19 outbreak really entailed.
0: And what's it like working with those samples? You know, is this coming through as a throat swab? Um, You know, what physical item do you folks work with and how does it get into your labs?
1: So we have significant expertise on sample collection and sample stabilization, and we've used similar processes for our core technology. So one of the modifications we may do the CDC recommended protocols was to do a cough swab, which is easier for the patient and the healthcare provider to, to, to be collected. We are also placing that cough swab into a special preservative, and that preservative in inactivates the virus, which is ideal because we don't want live viruses being transported all over the place. Um, but it also stabilizes the RNA from the virus. At ambient temperature for up to 30 days. So that gives us a safer and a more robust sample collection. So we send out cough swab collection kits to healthcare providers. They do the collections and send them back to us. So we receive the inactivated, stabilized cough swabs into our facility.
0: Okay, that's interesting. That sounds like it would be certainly preferable from the standpoint of of your employees.
1: Yes, absolutely. And our volunteers. We we, want to make sure that everybody is safe and protected.
0: Okay, and I was hoping to pivot to. a note about something that I saw mentioned in a recent article in the Loudon Times, which is that, um, you know, the apariomics core technology could have perhaps played a beneficial role in the early stages of the Wuhan outbreak. What could it have done, you know, had it been used, what sort of things would have been, you know, tested in order to get it perhaps an earlier handle on things?
1: Yes. Yeah, so had our technology been in and and used to screen the viral pneumonia patients that where this outbreak first started we would have identified that as a SARS-like virus through our system. And that would have been incredibly important information based on what we knew about SARS-1. Um, that would have been a huge red flag and prompted, you know, notifying, you know, authorities and and making sure that appropriate steps were taken to, you know, limit exposures and and limit spread of, of this disease. So um, You know, what we're really working hard and what we've been working hard on for six years is getting our technology into broad use because there's tremendous value in knowing everything that's in a sample, not just what you think is causing the infection.
0: So this would be a case in which, you know, you have patients showing up at, you know, an emergency department uh, with this pneumonia and you run a test and you discover that, you know, they appear to have some sort of coronavirus that you haven't seen before. And then that immediately gives you some idea about transmissibility and, and how best to respond to it?
1: Absolutely, yes. And certainly this coronavirus has very different characteristics than, than, um, than the first um, round of SARS a few years ago. But, um, you know, it, it, that SARS was, was was taken seriously, and we could have gotten knowledge into the right hands a lot more effectively.
0: And and that being of course critical, as we've seen, you know, at every stage to the response to the COVID nineteen pandemic, is that uh, the earlier and the more aggressively you respond, the better results you're likely to get.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So I was recently talking to some uh, disease ecologists, and they described that, you know, these uh, animal born illnesses probably cross over to humans very frequently. So it seems as though there would be a benefit to having this technology sort of widely rolled out and available for any case in which something popped up that you hadn't seen before.
1: Yes, no, I, zoonotic infections have occurred since the beginning of humanity and they will continue to occur until the end of humanity. So um, the the better tools we use to be able to identify and track these, these leaps from animals into humans you know, that creates a much, uh, that creates a situation that is 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 much more controllable than what we've experienced with this with this pandemic.
0: That's interesting. So, are there any plans, um, you know, in place right now, or, or is it still uh, too early when we're still too much in the you know in the midst of the present situation uh, to start thinking ahead to wider rollouts?
1: Right now, we're 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 primarily focused on on providing COVID nineteen testing. Um, I think, at least in the United States, we're we're still it's still a little bit too early. But, you know, the work that we want to do with, with Genelia to characterize all of the, the positive um, coronaviruses that we identify, um, you know, that will go into a public repository uh, for the greater good of, of science and understanding. So, you know, that's, that's really kind of the second layer to this that we can support.
0: And we'll certainly look forward to hearing more in the future on that. My last question, I'm just curious, what's the day-to-day experience uh, of working, you know, in the midst of this uh, pandemic been like? Is it a 24-7 type of operation or, uh, you know, are, are are people able to spend some time with their families as well? What's what what's the experience been like?
1: It's been a roller coaster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can imagine. I,
1: I, I don't know any other way to explain it. Um, my staff is amazing. We have all come together as a really tight group to solve this really complicated problem, and you know, and it, it goes in waves. You know, the first wave was how do we get supplies? Well, then we get supplies. Well, then how do we get them through customs? Um, that's been a really big sticking point, and and I understand the concern of having things you know imported in from other countries, but we're trying to provide crucial testing. And to have those things delayed getting to us, that hurts. That hurts people who are who are infected with the virus, and it slows down our progress. So, um, you know, dealing with the regulatory things has been has been challenging. Um, you asked earlier about working with the state of Virginia. They've been amazing. Um, so they have gotten us fast tracked into their reporting system so that we can report findings and make sure that you know we as a, a state and the country have good metrics on how many tests are being done and how many people are, are positive for the virus. The waves of, you know, educating people that we are here to provide testing, it's very frustrating. We, you know, this, I think it was last week, we had the capacity to do 2,500 samples a week, and we got in very, very few samples. And it was very frustrating because we're hearing all of these, these, Frustrations and all of these urgent pleas for testing, and we have the capability and we have the capacity, and we're not getting samples. So, getting the word out, um, sent, doing advertising, trying to you know make sure people know we're here so that they can utilize what we've put together. Um, that's been a challenge, and then you know dealing with the wave of samples coming in. It's a much higher volume of samples than what we. We're accustomed to with our core technology, so making that shift to have personnel, and we're hiring, um, have personnel in to be able to accommodate, you know, making sure that all samples are accession properly, making sure they get through the system properly, making sure all, every report gets sent to the, the healthcare provider. Um, So it's, it's, it's a roller coaster and it's come in waves. And in some respects, we've, we've been, you know, building the, the train track (laughs) as we've been driving on it.
0: It certainly sounds very challenging. And I think we're all very grateful for the work that you're doing. And I'm also very grateful for your sharing your time with me today. Dr. Eisenhower, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: All right, and next up, I'm very happy to bring you my conversation with Dr. Robbie Barbero, the Chief Business Officer of Series Nanosciences. Here it is, Dr. Barbero. Thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: To get us started, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a quick overview of Series Nanosciences and the nanotrap technology. You know, when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic, um, you know, what's the application and how does it work?
2: Um, well, well, thanks for asking that question. And and actually being in the middle of a global pandemic is is the kind of problem that we think about all the time uh and trying to solve so our technology is a bit of chemistry that can improve the performance of diagnostic tests uh so these are medical diagnostic tests for infectious diseases and cancers and it does that by capturing and concentrating very low abundance molecules uh, or or biological material from uh, from biological samples in order to improve the performance of the, of the tests for those for those molecules uh, and it just so happens that over the last few years with uh, quite a lot of support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and DARPA, which is one of the innovative research funding organizations in the Department of Defense, we developed a, a product using our technology that can improve the performance of diagnostic tests for respiratory viruses.
0: Okay. And you're probably going to get over my head very quickly, but in broad strokes, how does it work?
2: Well, what it is, is it's a it's a particle. So it's a small sphere. Um, it's about a half a micron so in, in diameter. So that's 500 nanometers. So... The human hair is maybe 10, 5 to 10 nanometers in diameter. So it's, you know, bigger around than a human hair, but still much smaller than the the individual eye can see. And we uh, we play with the chemistry of these particles uh, so that we can tune them to be able to capture different types of biomolecules. We can make versions that can capture proteins. We can make versions that can capture nucleic acids like DNA and RNA. And we can make versions that can capture larger biomolecules like whole viruses or even whole bacteria. Uh, so what we do is we, we put our particles into the sample and it might be urine, it might be blood. Uh, in the case of respiratory viruses, it would be uh, a, either saliva or um, the, the liquid that a swab gets stuck in um, and the viruses are floating around in that liquid. And our particles will grab those viruses and then pull them out of the liquid so that we can put more virus into the into the follow-on test.
0: Okay. And that sounds like it would be particularly useful for a virus like the SARS coronavirus 2, um, which isn't necessarily particularly abundant in all of the swabs, is that correct?
2: That's right. So you know, it's still very early days in this outbreak, and there's still a lot that the, the community is is trying to understand and learn about the virus. Um, but. What we have seen uh, from some of the early publications that came out of the outbreak in China, and remember they were a few months ahead of us uh, in the ramp up uh, and number of uh, infected individuals, Um, what we've seen from the publications that have been coming out of that is that the samples that were collected uh, and then the subsequent tests performed on those samples had uh, Concerning levels of, uh, concerningly high levels of false negatives. And so, a false negative is a is a jargony term. Let me let me give you a little bit of an explanation of what it means. It means that the test tells you you don't have the disease when it turns out it's actually there. And there are a whole bunch of reasons why these happen. And there, you know, false negatives uh, are present in any kind of testing regimen. Um, but with a with a swab-based sample, uh, the the suspect the suspected causes. Either there's just not a lot of virus in the back of your throat when you stick that, that Q-tip in the back of your throat and swab it, or it's actually quite unpleasant to reach all the way back to where the virus is at its highest concentration and swab it. And so if you don't get much virus uh, out of your mouth and into the test, then the test might not be able to tell you if you really had it or not. Uh, so we, we saw this data coming out, these data coming out at the beginning of the year. And it just so happens that we had launched a commercial product last November, November of 2019, uh, that was built for this exact purpose, to to concentrate viruses, uh, especially respiratory viruses like influenza, RSV, and we even have data on some of the common strains of coronavirus, uh, showing that we can improve diagnostic testing for those viruses using our technology.
0: And so was this something that you had... Uh, you had to retool specifically for this coronavirus, or is it one where the technology was already close enough, um, you know, to this novel coronavirus that you're able to, you know, use what you already had ready?
2: Great question. So we are waiting for the first results out of our collaborator's lab that's working with the coronavirus. So we don't know for sure yet that it works with the new coronavirus strain. Um, however, we. Think that it will work and it has required no re- retooling so far and the reason that we think it will work is that the product has already been demonstrated to work with multiple strains of influenza multiple strains of RSV and multiple strains of coronavirus uh, so we've tested it we and our, and our customers and collaborators have tested it with with multiple strains of coronavirus um, the challenge with any new pandemic outbreak of a virus is that often you've never seen it before and that's especially that's a you know that's a big problem with this virus that's why we don't have a vaccine because we've never seen this virus before so we don't know the molecular makeup of it and therefore we don't know how to design a virus it's the same problem with the diagnostic testing Uh, until you can get a hold of a of a true positive sample you don't know if your product's going to work for it. Um, so we, we hope to find a, find out uh, very soon that it is, it is working with this new strain of coronavirus and that it doesn't require any retooling.
0: Okay. And so, you know, if that were the case, uh, you know, obviously I think, you know, most of the analysis that I've read has suggested that we're looking at very much a marathon rather than a sprint type of situation and that testing and, you know, contact tracing is going to be, you know, very important as we go forward over the coming months uh, to get an idea of, you know, where the virus is, you know, this is after the curve has been flattened to whatever degree is possible. Um, And so your technology would then fit in in between this, that, you know, the collection of a sample and the laboratory testing of that sample.
2: That's right, and um, I'll take it uh, even a lo- take it a little bit farther down the rabbit hole on this. Um, so everything you said, I think, is an excellent assessment of what we are going to be facing in the next year to year and a half. Um, we will need a lot of tests, a lot of tests being run over a long period of time. Um, but we're also going to need a lot of different types of tests, and so your listeners may uh, be starting to. hear hear about the different types of tests, and it certainly can be confusing and overwhelming. In general, for a virus like this, there are three types of tests um, that are testing for three different types of things, let's say. One is they're looking for, one type of test is, is looking for the nucleic acids that are that are the virus, so the viral genome. Um, these are the first tests that are usually built because they're, they're the fastest and easiest to build because once you've sequenced the genome of the virus, then you know what to look for. Um, this, the second type of test is looking for the proteins that are specific to that virus. This takes a little bit longer because uh, you can't just uh, sequence uh, a virus's protein sequences. You have to actually get enough of that virus and then go in and do some protein analysis to figure it out. But those tests are now actually starting to come online here in the United States. And then the third type of test <clears throat> is what everybody's calling the antibody tests. And these are the ones where you're not going in and looking for the presence of the virus protein or nucleic acids, but you're actually looking for the antibodies in the human that was infected to say, oh yes, you have antibodies against this virus, so therefore you were previously infected. So our technology can actually work with all three of those types of tests. Um, It would be a different flavor of our our nanotrap technology that would work for the antibody-based tests. Um, but we do have products already uh, in use for antibody-based testing. And you're exactly right. It would be something that would sit in between the collection of the sample and the, the running of the test. And it can actually go into the collection device, um, so it can happen right at the sample collection. You can, you can put our particles into that. Or it can be in the laboratory and being, be part of the, the first step of the laboratory test running that's happening.
0: That's actually that's interesting, and I, and I'm particularly interested by the uh, fact that this is implicated in antibody testing as well. Um, that sounds incredibly va- valuable, in particular for an illness such as this one, um, which in many cases seems to have a very minimal presentation. So there are probably quite a few people out there who may have already had it and don't know, um, and and maybe you know functionally immune for at least some period of time.
2: Maybe we don't know, right? I mean, that, that's the, that is one of the big open questions right now on, on Science Twitter. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if you spend any time on, on Twitter in the sci- in the following the scientists and the scientific discussions. It's actually been a fascinating time to be on Science Twitter in the last few months. But that is one of the big questions: is how how rampant was this virus before we realized that it was here? Uh, and the corollary to that question is how many people are already immune to it? Um, and nobody knows the answer to that. There are some. Uh, a few data points out there. For example, uh, the town of Telluride, Colorado, my home state, uh, had everyone in the town tested um, uh, recently. And it turns out I think only about 1% of the people had antibodies against the virus. Now, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Telluride. It's a box, it's in a box canyon, which means there are like j- thousand foot walls on three sides of the town and there's only one road in. So it's not exactly representative of what a, a, a city like Washington, D.C. would be like. But that was one example to say, you know, it hadn't really gotten there. Um, and then there are other estimates that say, oh, it might be as many as 10 or 15 or 20% of the people already have it. So we the only way we know that, as your listeners will know, is, is to actually run the test and, and see.
0: Yeah, and that actually, it, it reminds me of what's almost become a running joke on this show, which is that, you know, the more research you have, the more, you know, the more data you're able to gather, the better off you are, um, and the more able you are to address problems. So that, that certainly seems like it's the case here as well. Oh,
2: absolutely. You can't you can't make reasonably well informed decisions at a a policy or public health uh, level unless you have the right data. Um, And unfortunately, we just haven't had enough data um, in recent months. And the real big push right now is towards generating, managing, curating and understanding how to use those data moving forward.
0: Right. Let's talk about series for a moment. You know, what size of an organization is this? You know, I I think a lot of times, you know, when we talk about uh, businesses, it's, it kind of comes as an abstraction. You know, how many folks are are on the team and, you know, uh, what's next? Do you have to, you know, scale up in a large way? What are things looking like right now?
2: Well, so we're a small business. Sure. So we have, we have 20 employees. Um, Almost all of us are scientists. uh, And the vast majority of the people work in the laboratory every day. Um, so we are we are we really are a, a science-based and laboratory-based organization. Now we don't we don't run diagnostic tests ourselves, so we're not a we're not the kind of organization where you would send your sample and ask for for a test result from us. Um, but we make a product that we then sell to the diagnostic companies or to researchers who are developing diagnostic tests. Um, so a typical day for us, when there's not a global pandemic, is everybody shows up at the office just like you do at any job. <laughs> And, uh, and the people who are working in the lab put on their lab coats, put on their gloves, put on their, their goggles. Um, because we work, you, you have to wear protective equipment and when you're in a laboratory, regardless of you know what's happening in there because there are chemicals and biological materials you don't want to be exposed to. And then people are doing their experiments and it's developing new types of our particles. It's testing those particles in new applications. Uh, in with new types of viruses or cancers or new types of biomolecules and then everybody has a desk everybody has computers uh, and just like in every other job in this country it's it's looking at the results of your data and trying to understand what it mean what it means and did it work and are the products working and do we need to change it that kind of stuff so that's that's our day that's what we normally do Um, things have definitely changed in the uh, in the course of this outbreak Uh, because just like every other organization we are really really concerned about the safety and health of our employees Uh, we are considered an essential business in the in the commonwealth of virginia where we're located which means that we are uh, expected to keep running because we're contributing to the solution to this outbreak Uh, we also don't have the general public Uh, coming in and interfacing with us uh, at all. uh, So we have somewhat of a contained environment. Um, What we've done is we've put in place rigorous sanitation measures. So we're cleaning every surface in the building uh, multiple times a day. Um, And then we've, we've put in place a staggered schedule. So we're trying to make sure that there are fewer than 10 people in the building at any given time, uh, which means half of our team shows up for the morning shift and leaves in the middle of the day and half the team shows up in the afternoon and stays a little bit longer. Uh, and then we've spaced people out a little bit further in the laboratory and in the offices so that people aren't sitting in, this, in the same uh, close spaces with each other. And then obviously all of the other, the, the other uh, precautions that everyone is taking, which is if you think you've been exposed to somebody, don't come to work. If you're, if you're not feeling well, check with your doctor.
0: Right. And I'm wondering, though, you know, that's got to be incredibly difficult because you're dealing with a situation in which you have to be less than fully staffed at any given moment. And I'm sure the workload has significantly increased in the past few weeks.
2: It is a challenging time to be trying to be alive, I think, is the answer to that question. Right. right. So so I, uh, for sure, we have our own unique challenges as a, as a business. Um, and I am grateful every day to all of our employees and their willingness and ability to show up and work really, really hard on something that is really, really important in the face of all of the global uncertainty. And everyone has their own unique personal situations and home situations that they're trying to manage. And on top of it all, nobody knows, like you said at the beginning, this is a marathon, not a sprint, right? This doesn't, everyone knows this doesn't end tomorrow or next week or next month. Um, and so there's a lot of adjustment that have to be made to, to try to figure out how to, how to make life work. Um, but, uh, I think on the other hand, it's inspiring to know that we're working on something that is, uh, that is actually going to make a difference in this problem.
0: And and speaking of which, you know, what are the next steps in order to, you know, scale up this technology, uh, to a level that, you know, it, it might be broadly applicable. There's certainly value there, but how does this, you know, um, find its way to widespread adoption
2: well our uh the main the scaling our technology is just a matter of making more of the particles and because they are nanometer sized pro- uh, products or smaller than micrometer sized products um, we can actually make a lot of them in a fairly small amount of space um, so we already have the ability with our current um, manufacturing capacity to make Um, to make somewhere around a couple hundred thousand units per week Um, and that is scalable um, by adding additional we make them in in chemical hoods the the kind of hoods that you've your listeners have probably seen a lot of times where there's a a glass sash that moves up and down in the front and then inside of it is a ventilated space Uh, and then we use a chemical a chemical reactor inside of that um, which just has heat control and uh, and a stir. So we make our make our products in those, and we can make more by adding more reactors and, and more hoods into our space. Um, so we're already thinking about if this uh, if we start to see implementation or use of our product in some of these testing regimens, um, what would a scale-up process look like, um, making sure that we are ready to pull the trigger on purchasing those equipment um, and,
0: and being ready to make more product. Well, that's something I certainly hope we'll be able to follow up on in the future. Uh, But in the meantime, Dr. Barbero, thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me.
0: And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.